From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Israel Keys. It's a revisit. Now, Israel is a very interesting case. This podcast will probably sound a little different because researching Israel is not easy. There isn't much about his very early years other than tidbits here and there, the superficial stuff that any website has regurgitated from every other site. I read the book, quote, Devil in the Darkness by J.T. Hunter, and it was quite eye-opening. It hit me on a very personal level. The author does get into very graphic detail about Israel's final victim, so I do want to caution you there. But it was an excellent book and a very easy read. I recommend it. So let's jump right in. Special thanks to my patrons. Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoris, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. I almost forgot this time. I so apologize. Israel Keys was born on January 7th, 1978 in Richmond, Utah. Since Israel was born in 1978, we'll talk about the history around the time of the early 80s. Now, the 80s were a great time for young people and kids due to serious advances in technology. People were able to buy personal computers, which were big, bulky machines, to say the least. The monitor screen was rounded, and the whole thing was like a smaller television, except the screen was usually black with green lettering. We also had Atari game consoles and played games like Frogger, Pong, Asteroids, Space Invaders, Pitfall, one of my favorites, and many others. CDs were put on the market, making finding your favorite song on an album nearly instant, rather than having to fast forward or rewind your cassette tapes. VCRs had been around since the late 70s, and now most people had one in their home. This meant a whole new business for the entertainment industry, and they began mass-producing movies for some home viewing. With the demand came video rental stores like Blockbuster, Movie Gallery, Hollywood Video, Family Video, and so on. But you'd better have brought your movies back on time. Those late fees were horrible. It was also the golden age of primetime television. We had shows like Dallas, Dynasty, Cheers, Family Ties, The Cosby Show, Mork and Mindy, Knight Rider, and one of my personal favorites from back then, V. We saw the rise of daytime talk shows like Oprah, Geraldo Rivera, Phil Donahue, and at night, David Letterman was king. 
Some of the all-time favorite cast members of Saturday Night Live were active. Needless to say, we were not hurting for entertainment. Some other famous people born in 1978 were Ashton Kutcher, Michelle Rodriguez, Kobe Bryant, John Legend, Rachel McAdams, Jensen Ackles, and James Franco. Big multinational corporations began moving their manufacturing overseas, mostly to Thailand, Mexico, South Korea, Taiwan, China, Japan, and Germany. But for the most part, the late 70s and early 80s were still a time of decadence. And perhaps because of that decadence, maybe that could explain why Israel's parents were the way that they were. Israel Keyes was born the second of 10 children in a then fundamentalist Mormon household in Richmond, Utah, which is about 100 miles northeast of Salt Lake City. His parents were John and Heidi Keyes. And while I can't say for sure about his siblings, we know that Israel was born at home, off-grid, meaning it is highly unlikely that he had a birth certificate, at least at first. He was born with no documentation of his birth. John worked as a maintenance man and was described as hardworking as well as strict, but not to the point of abuse. He and his wife Heidi, who was a third-generation American whose family was from Sweden, had married three years before Israel was born. The couple named all of their children based on biblical or godly themes. For example, Israel, Sunshine, Autumn Rose, Charity, Hosanna. Israel was their first son born, and it's a bit foretelling that, of a couple of meanings, his name means, quote, he who struggles with God, end quote. While Israel was still very young, John and Heidi moved the family from Utah to Colville, Washington, which was another small town. They lived in a small, remote, one-room cabin with no electricity. Their only source of heat was a small indoor wood stove. In fact, as the parents continued to have children, the older children were forced to sleep outside in tents. Due to mostly his mother's intense and often changing religious beliefs, he and his siblings were homeschooled. Also during this time, Heidi had the family begin to attend a church near the Canadian border called the Ark. Now, the Ark is now known as Our Place Fellowship, and it has an interesting story. According to an article written by Jim Camden for thespokesman.com, the Ark is part of a very small and thankfully disappearing offshoot of Christianity known as British Israelism, which is also known as Anglo-Israelism. It is a cult archaeological movement arising in England that believes the people of the British Isles are, quote, genetically, racially, and linguistically the direct descendants of the ten lost tribes of ancient Israel, end quote. It was sort of born from writings by a 19th century author named John Wilson, who wrote, quote, Our Israelitish Origin in 1840, but those writings were not actually the first. They were interpreted from a Frenchman's writing published in 1590, saying, quote, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Scandinavian, Germanic, and associated cultures were direct descendants of the ancient Israelites, end quote. 
meaning they are the true chosen people of the Bible, but not the Jews. The movement says that the Jews stole the claim of being the chosen people as part of a conspiracy to oppress and cheat Gentiles. The movement didn't really have a central structure, but we do know it made its way over to the United States in the 1870s. But between 1899 and 1902, people belonging to this religious movement in the UK decided to excavate parts of the Hill of Terra in Ireland, believing the Ark of the Covenant was buried there, and they did a lot of damage to one of Ireland's most ancient royal and archaeological sites. They even began preaching that the Pyramid of Khufu contained prophecies about the British people. This group created the British Israel World Federation, or the BIWF, which still exists today. The offshoot of this, located in Washington, as I previously said, is now called, quote, Our Place Fellowship, was then led by an elderly man named Pastor Dan Henry. He preached that white people are the superior chosen race and that the stories in the Bible are their stories. He also preached that Jews are biologically descended from Lucifer himself. So also at this time, the family's closest neighbors were another family, the Kehos. More importantly, Chevy and Shane. Now this family has a history. The parents were Kirby and Gloria Kehoe, and they named Chevy, the oldest of eight sons, after Kirby's favorite automobile. Chevy's father had been in the Navy during the Vietnam War. When Chevy and his siblings got a bit older, their parents began homeschooling them. Chevy was raised in an extremely anti-government and white supremacist household. Once Chevy was an older teenager, he began formulating a plan to take down the U.S. government with his own, quote, Aryan People's Republic militia, end quote. He actively recruited at gun show events. He went on to have two wives, stating that polygamy was a way to further the Aryan race. Chevy went on to rob and kidnap a Jewish couple in 1995. The next year, Chevy and an accomplice murdered a family of three and dumped their bodies in a swamp in Arkansas. Then the year after that, Chevy and his brother Shane were in a shootout with the Ohio State Highway Patrol. They managed to escape. Shane got sick of Chevy's ideologies and left. Chevy eventually surrendered and was arrested in June of 1997. Chevy has also been accused by Shane that he knew about the Oklahoma City bombing, that Chevy and bomber Timothy McVeigh were together at a motel chatting a few months before the bombing. The motel manager states that the morning of the bombing, Chevy showed up in the office and asked the manager to change the TV to CNN and appeared quite happy. I can't say if this last part is 100% true, but I'm just throwing that out there. While Israel and Chevy didn't have a major connection, I wanted to share this because they were childhood friends for a time. However, while Israel was still quite young, he walked around with a pistol on him at all times. And when he was 14, his grandfather gave him a 38 caliber revolver and Israel went on to make his first homemade silencer. One thing that he did take from his childhood friend, their family, and the Ark 
was a distrust of the government. At 14 years old, Israel began to see that he thought differently compared to other kids. He stated, quote, I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal and were okay that no one else seemed to think were normal and okay. So that's when I just started being a loner. I got in trouble a few times around that age. People found out about some of the stuff I did, like my parents and parents of other kids who would hang out with me. They would find out about some of the stuff I did, and that's when I just started doing stuff by myself pretty much exclusively. End quote. What he is referring to is once taking a cat, tying it to a tree with a long cord, shooting it in the stomach, watching it run around and around the tree until it ran out of cord and smacked into the tree, vomiting before it died. He thought it was funny how frantic the cat was. A friend who was with him was so horrified that he also threw up. That kid then told his dad, who told Israel's dad, and that was the last time he took any friends with him out into the woods. This was when he decided to split his personality into what the public deemed acceptable and his true inner self. And really, he just loved to kill. He once stated that while out in the woods, he would kill, quote, anything with a heartbeat, end quote. Israel had a natural talent for carpentry work and even built his first wood cabin at the age of 16. He moved on to be a general contractor in Colville for two years, starting in 1995 when he was just 17. His work ethic and focus were quite impressive. But Israel's parents decided to move the family to Maine to become maple syrup farmers. The area they moved to was predominantly Amish, and indeed the family went to an Amish church for a few years, but they never really completely joined the Amish community. A friend of the family later stated that Israel's mother was, quote, very creepy and cult-minded, end quote. He and his siblings would often sneak away from their parents and go to a friend's house so that they could even watch a movie. The kids were not allowed to play musical instruments because they were against God. But Israel was the golden child of the family and his siblings put him on a pedestal. However, not too long after the family got established in Maine, Israel began to change. What prompted it isn't exactly known, but he was done feeling oppressed. He got into it with his parents, and as they verbally fought, Israel announced that he wanted nothing to do with their religious beliefs anymore, that he was an atheist. His mother, horrified, declared him as a blasphemer, and he was immediately kicked out of the house and away from the family. His siblings were ordered to have nothing to do with him from that point on. So that's his childhood in a nutshell. Let's analyze that. There are a lot of aspects about his childhood that I'm quite frankly not comfortable even touching. There are tons of religious beliefs out there, and I'm of the mind that people are free to believe whatever they want, as long as they aren't hurting anyone else or themselves, and they aren't trying to shove any religion down my throat. With that said, 
There are studies that exist that talk about children brought up with over-the-top religious parents who are kept away from the general population. A few decades ago, political activists on the far religious right decided they wanted to put together an, quote, ideology machine. And homeschooling their children was a central theme in that plan, which was to procreate and train an army of religious warriors. According to an article written by Catherine Stewart, as well as the Department of Education, the homeschooling student population has exploded and the growth continues. There are more reasons, aside from religion, that prompts parents to homeschool, but religion is the main one nonetheless. Many of the kids brought up in segregated, strictly religious households where they are not allowed to attend public school with their peers are now old enough to talk about how their life was, and it wasn't very good. 28-year-old Ryan Stoller gave an interview where he spoke about his experience regarding the virtues of authentically Christian homeschool education. Quote, The Christian homeschool subculture isn't a children-first movement. It is, for all intents and purposes, an ideology-first movement. There is a massive, well-oiled machine of ideology that is churning out soldiers for the culture war. Homeschooling is both the breeding ground, literally, when you consider the quiverful concept, and the training ground for this machinery. I say this as someone who was raised in that world. End quote. Just think Josh Duggar and that whole situation. He states that putting the ideology over the children's well-being and immersion into society causes them to have anxiety, depression, distrust of authority, and severe issues around sexuality. Kids in this extreme environment are taught more about the ideology than, say, true science that has no bias toward Christianity. Children that are isolated from society are so much more likely to grow up to be psychologically distressed as adults. Studies have shown that extreme versions of social isolation in children affect the neuron-to-neuron communication in the prefrontal cortex. Now, if you've been with me for a while now, or if you study this sort of thing, you know that issues with the prefrontal cortex is very serious business. To simplify things a bit, it is responsible for planning, decision-making, problem-solving, self-control, as well as acting with long-term goals in mind. Damage can lead to abnormalities in emotional responses. They can lose some ability to inhibit critical impulses. Israel had a lot of siblings to interact with and play with, so this might not be related to his later crimes, but it is noteworthy to say the least. So as we learned about Israel's upbringing, it is impossible to think his over-the-top religious mother in particular didn't have an underlining agenda while homeschooling her children. And not to give too much away too soon, I will tell you that she never got any better at all and that most, if not all, of his siblings are still very deeply indoctrined. I'm not talking about regular church-going folk. I'm talking about the extremists. 
So after being banished from his family for proclaiming to be an atheist, he traveled from Maine down to New Jersey and enlisted in the army. He served as a specialist in the Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Infantry, and was stationed at Fort Lewis near Tacoma, Washington, as well as Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas, but his training was in Egypt. He was an excellent soldier and received an Army Achievement Medal for, quote, meritorious service while assigned as a gunner and assistant gunner in the Alpha Company, 60-millimeter mortar section, end quote. He also located and neutralized landmines, and it was commented that he was quite skilled at keeping his cool in these terrifying situations. It is also interesting to note, though, that a fellow soldier that Israel shared a barrack with stated that though he and Israel got along, he never dropped his guard around him. He stated that he had said something that offended Israel, to which Israel replied, quote, I want to kill you. End quote. It was also said that Israel visited prostitutes during his time in the military and that he was bisexual, though that was only extended to transsexuals. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even talking about murders or that kind of stuff. I'm, I was, the prostitutes is more of what I was getting at. Well, I'm sure you guys found my porn collection, so you know I have a wide range of mm -hmm. tastes. <laughs> And it just varies. I never really took the prostitutes that seriously because, um, I mean, I was never, I was, I mean, I was only calling them because they were prostitutes. Mm -hmm. I wasn't calling them because I was thinking I was going to kill one of them. Okay. So, in other words, Israel Keyes was a trained soldier. He thrived in that environment. These ingredients made him a trained killer. He loved planning and researching. He was described as a man of logistics, strict routine. And most importantly, he knew how to close himself off from the world to internalize his deepest thoughts. In a later interview, he said, There is no one who knows me or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. Quote, They are going to tell you something that is not going to line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kinds of things I'm telling you, is me. End quote. When they asked him how long he had been two different people, he snickered and said, quote, A long time, 14 years. End quote. Israel later said that, while in the military, he, quote, came to terms with myself and the reasons I wanted to do it, referring to his very near future criminal behavior. So, in 2001, when he was 23 years old, he was pulled over in Washington and arrested for driving under the influence, but only received one day in jail and a $350 fine. But just before he was honorably discharged, he met Tammy Hawkins. Tammy was nine years older than Israel, being born in 1969. Her father was African-American and her mother was Native American, specifically the Macaw tribe. Tammy came from a broken home when she was still quite young. 
Her father wasn't around much, and he had another girlfriend on the side. Tammy's mother was just 19 when she had her and eventually went on to be an alcoholic. She endured a lot of racial discrimination due to her lineage on the reservation, which is located in the northwestern top point of Washington state. Also due to her mother's problems, she and her siblings were in and out of foster care a few times. Saying they were poor is an understatement. They were forced to live in houses that should have been condemned with no indoor plumbing or electricity. When Tammy was 16 years old, she too began drinking and found out quickly that she was addicted. But she joined Alcoholics Anonymous and moved to Tacoma off of the reservation. While scanning a newspaper looking for a job, she saw an advertisement for a local chat line for people who were looking for someone to date. She decided to have some fun and give it a try. She soon heard a message on the chat line from Israel, who was clearly meaning to leave a message for someone else entirely, and she decided to leave him a message telling him he had done so, and he replied back quickly. He referred to himself as is. There was an instant connection. Tammy and Israel began to talk on the phone for hours. Then they agreed to meet at a Mexican restaurant. At first, she wasn't physically attracted to him. He was six foot two, thin, and a bit lanky. She stated that he came across as a nerd, and at first it was a little awkward, but they quickly fell into their comfortable conversation, already knowing that they had a lot in common, growing up poor, with no electricity, and so on. They were nearly inseparable from that meeting on. Their relationship turned sexual very quickly, and they both drank quite a bit together, even though Tammy knew she shouldn't be drinking at all. And out of every time they had sex with protection, they didn't one time. She told him she had become pregnant, and at first he asked her to have an abortion. She refused, but told him he can go on with his life and that she will not bother him about the child. So... Tammy moved back to the Macaw Reservation so that she could have her family help her with the coming baby. But he'd had time to think about it, and once he was released from the Army, he tracked Tammy down and contacted her, stating he wanted to be with her and be a father to the baby. So she agreed, and he moved onto the Macaw Reservation with her and settled into a life of domesticity. He got a highly coveted job with the Parks and Recreation Department with the Tribal Authority and spent the majority of his time in the mountains and densely forested areas of the Olympic Peninsula. And during this time, Israel began to kill. Who and exactly where? No one knows for sure. We only know that he alluded to the fact that he had killed some people in Washington while he was living there. When he began to fear that the number of people in the vicinity would draw attention, he decided he would kill outside of the state he was residing in at that time. He also hinted to the fact that he had killed someone in New York State. And also, as an added bonus, murder wasn't the only thing he did. He also robbed banks. Did he need the money? Absolutely not. Because once he got out of the army, he made enough to support himself, his girlfriend, and his daughter. 
He went on to be a general contractor and made excellent money. He said it was never for the money, really. It was for the adrenaline rush. Now, he was an excellent father. Due to his need for order and schedule, he made for nearly the perfect parent. He was up early at the same time every morning. He would make breakfast for their daughter, clean her up, get her dressed and take her to daycare, and then later to school before work. In the evenings, he cooked his daughter dinner, spent time with her, and got her ready for bed. Tammy, on the other hand, was not faring so well. She had had to have a hysterectomy and was prescribed pain pills. Then not too long after, she was in a car accident and was prescribed more pain pills. And you guessed it, she became deeply addicted. She and Israel began to grow apart due to her addiction, even though he drank quite a bit himself until he began sleeping on the couch. Then one day in 2007, he announced that he had another girlfriend and due to her moving to Anchorage, Alaska, he was taking their daughter and moving there as well. There was a custody battle, but ultimately Israel had their daughter most of the time. Once settled up there, he opened a business called Keys Construction, and his customers gave him rave reviews. He also began doing research on his computer. He stated that he began looking for small towns with little to no crime rate and study it. He would pay attention to how many roads came in and out of the towns, traffic trends, hotels, and so on. By the time he settled on where to go, the entire plan was in place. Then in April 2009, it was time to execute his plan and Israel flew from Alaska to Chicago, rented a car, and began to drive east. Along the way, he decided to indulge in something he rarely ever did, a quote, spur of the moment action. Deborah Feldman was unfortunately a perfect victim. She was strung out on drugs. Her family had all but disowned her, and she had turned to prostitution to pay for her habit. She was walking by herself down a New Jersey road. Israel was known to be in town at that time in a rental car, as one of his kill kits was discovered nearby. He picked Deborah up and drove well past the city, and it is likely that when she realized what was happening, she became terrified. He later admitted to driving hundreds of miles north with, quote, a victim. He most likely restrained her and sexually assaulted her during the journey. He and his victim ended up at Tupper Lake in New York State. Then he donned gloves, sunglasses, a fake mustache and goatee, and a coat that he pulled the hood up over his head and walked into a local bank. He robbed it calmly and left with $10,000. He got back into his car and drove on. How he killed her is not known, as he never told the entire story, but compared to what he did to others they do know about, she was most likely strangled, dismembered, her body put into trash bags, and then passively dumped into the Tupper Lake. Her body was never recovered. Keyes never fully admitted to killing her, but he certainly showed signs of recognition when shown a picture of her. Then, the next day, Israel traveled back down southward and stopped in Essex, Vermont. 
he got a room at the Handy Suites and paid, with cash, for four nights. Once settled in, he went outside and began walking around, looking for a secluded place to hide another kill kit, which was buried in an orange Home Depot bucket. A few days later, he drove to New Hampshire, boarded a flight for Alaska, happy that the town and the tools were chosen and neatly hidden and in place. You see, this became his routine. He reveled in the thrill of the research, timing, the traveling, and the planning that he did, and even more so because he made sure it was completely at random. The authorities have no idea just how many people Israel Keys actually murdered, but they've been able to trace a good amount of his traveling and are still, to this day, comparing that to missing persons reports, though it is still a very daunting task because he would travel for hundreds and hundreds of miles during these excursions. So two years later, Israel came full circle. In June 2011, two years after he had first traveled there, he flew from Anchorage to Indiana, got a rental car, drove clear to New York to check on some land he owned there, which was wild, unkempt, and had a dilapidated house on it with the roof caving in. Side note, he said he never disposed of his victims on that land because he owned it, and that was completely traceable. He then left New York and drove back to Essex, Vermont. He dug up his kill kit he had buried two years prior and began watching the local neighborhoods. He said he didn't want to choose anyone with children. That was out of the question. So he settled on a middle-aged couple, Bill and Lorraine Couriers. He also noted not far from the couple's home was a farmhouse that was for sale that was basically deserted. One night, he walked into their house, let himself into their garage, and looked around to make sure there were no things for children inside, such as bicycles and so on. Satisfied, he broke the window on the door that connected the garage to the house and let himself inside. Wearing a headlamp, he snuck through the house, awoke Bill and Lorraine, and bound them. He then put them in their own car, drove their car out of the garage, down the driveway, and toward the farmhouse. He didn't give a lot of detail about their murder, other than he ordered them at gunpoint down into the basement, and Bill began to get belligerent. Israel was beginning to lose his always calm and controlled demeanor, which upset him. So he shot Bill several times in front of Lorraine. He then raped her and strangled her with a zip tie. It is believed he then dismembered the bodies, put the parts in trash bags, and left them in the basement. He attempted to set the house on fire, but the fire didn't ignite. It had been raining in that area quite a bit. He then calmly flew back home. Not long after, the farmhouse was demolished. Workers who were bulldozing it stated that they did detect a supremely foul odor coming from the basement, and one even said they saw trash bags down there, but each thought it was just simple trash and thought nothing of it. The remains of the couple as well as the house were taken to a local landfill, Their bodies were never recovered. So think about that, guys. 
from inception to execution. He took two years to do this. This was how he said he handled nearly all of his murders. Can you imagine the self-control he must have had to be able to put this much thought and effort into planning every little detail, and yet places and people were chosen at random? His last known murder was his undoing. Out of the 10 plus years he had been actively being a serial killer, he had learned after admitting to killing people in Washington state while living there and realizing that was a mistake, not to do that around his local area, but not this last time. He had been sort of itching for that adrenaline rush. He later said that he craved the rush and then the subsequent sense of calm and peace after murdering. Only with each murder, that feeling was decreasing both in strength and duration. He wanted a quick fix, and whether it was that he had begun to feel that he'd never be caught or what, he started hunting in his hometown of Anchorage. Israel began his hunt. He started watching and observing the comings and goings of the Common Grounds coffee booth. It was a very small little trailer of sorts and a parking lot with a walk-up window. These are quite popular in Alaska. 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was working that night. She was beloved by all that knew her and was described as bright, bubbly, and had desperately wanted to work at the coffee booth, much to the apprehension of her father who had raised her as a single parent. But he finally gave his blessing. Anchorage in the winter is unbelievably cold. It had been snowing a lot, and the pile of snow along the road that the highway crews had scraped off of the roads was particularly high, making it, making the little coffee shop more difficult to see from the road. On February 1st, 2012, just before 8 p.m., near closing time, a man said, quote, Could I get an Americano, please? End quote. It startled Samantha for just a moment, but she happily began to make his drink, and they chatted for a bit. As she handed him his coffee and told him the price, she looked toward the window at a gun in her face. If you are so inclined, there is security camera footage of this on YouTube, if you're curious. Her fear is visibly palpable when she realizes the danger. He demanded her to turn the lights off, though it is believed that he wasn't aware of the security cameras. He then ordered her to crouch on the floor as he boasted calmly about he had killed before and what will happen to her if she tries to escape. To him, this is simply routine, and he liked that she complied. He made her empty the cash register till. Israel then told her to put on her coat as he pulled himself swiftly through the window inside the shop with her. He bound her wrists with zip ties and forced her out of the back of the shop. Unfortunately, she was too scared to push the installed panic button in the shop. He told her that she was to walk and act like they were a couple and that he was going to put his arm around her so if anyone saw them, they'd think nothing of it. She did attempt to run from him, but he caught her nearly instantly, stuck the gun into her ribcage, and told her that if she did that again, she would not enjoy the outcome. 
She complied. Later, he was asked, quote, Since you were going on a cruise the next day, what were you planning on doing with that person? End quote. He grinned and said, quote, Well, I wasn't going to bring her with me. End quote. Israel then put her in his truck, used more zip ties to ensure she was safely subdued, and proceeded to drive around for hours, even stopping for fuel at one point. Samantha fearfully told him that she needed to use the restroom, and he begrudgingly found a remote place to pull over and let her relieve herself. All the while, he was telling her that he was going to only use her to get a ransom, and then he'd let her go. She relaxed ever so slightly, finding a bit of hope in his promise. Around that time, her boyfriend went by the coffee shop to pick her up, but the place was dark and she wasn't there. He texted her repeatedly with no response. He then contacted her father, who told him that he was sure everything was fine and to give her time to respond about where she was. Both of them could not have been more wrong. Eventually, around 2 a.m., Israel decided to risk it and drove home with Samantha laying in the back seat of his work truck. His girlfriend was still awake inside, but he had prepared his shed ahead of time for this very reason. He had left heaters running. He whisked Samantha out of his truck and hurried her into the shed. He subdued her in the shed and told her he had to go do some things to get the ransom demand ready and that she'd better not make a sound. She agreed, but he still blasted loud music, just in case. After he returned back home around 4 a.m., he went inside his house to find his girlfriend asleep. He poured himself a glass of wine and returned to the shed. Samantha was exactly where he had left her. He then calmly ordered her to lay face down on the floor. He bound her hands with rope ahead of her and screwed them into the wall. He secured her legs as well and put a large zip tie around her throat where all he had to do was pull it to tighten it. She said, please don't rape me, to which he replied, you knew this was coming. And then he did. When he was done, he simply grabbed the zip tie, pulled it as hard as he could, and strangled her. He then turned the heaters off, wrapped her up in a tarp, and put her inside of a long cabinet in the shed. He then put two locks on the doors and went inside to call the cab that would take him to the airport to catch a flight down to New Orleans. He stated that he smiled during the entire flight, feeling that deep sense of satisfaction after a fresh kill. He boarded the cruise ship and was gone for two weeks. When he returned to New Orleans on February 11th, he rented a car and began driving over to Texas where he robbed a bank, then stopped at a gas station and got a kick out of watching the police cars race by on the road in front of him, responding to the robbery. Finally, on February 18th, he returned his rental car, having put 3,000 miles on it in six days. What he did during that time, no one knows for sure. Israel caught a flight back home on February 18th and made it just in time to get his daughter ready for school. 
With his girlfriend at work, he had plenty of time to deal with the body he had left in his shed 17 days prior. If you remember, he had turned the heaters off, so her body was frozen completely solid. He took the time to thaw it out completely. He then violated her corpse one last time. He then devoted the next couple of days to gathering supplies, a Polaroid camera, fishing line, sewing needles, makeup, and he found a newspaper dated February 13th and bought it. He then went home and began trying to make Samantha look like she was still alive. He took the fishing line, sewed her eyelids open to make it look like she was awake and had to do many, many layers of foundation to hide what we all know was happening to her skin. He then held the newspaper in front of her propped up face and snapped a photo. The Polaroid is haunting, knowing what he did to create that picture. Israel typed a ransom note asking for $30,000 to be put into Samantha's bank account because he had her wallet. He then attached the note and the photo onto a pole at a park. Now it was time to get rid of the body. In a very Dexter-esque move, he put plastic all over the walls and floor of his shed. He then began to dismember her body, putting the remains into garbage bags. He triple-wrapped the bags and left them in his shed for a few more days. Israel then drove to a nearby lake, set up a quick ice-fishing shack, took the bags inside, cut a hole in the three-foot-thick ice, and dropped them down into the lake. He then fished for a few hours, caught some fish, took them home, and made a fish dinner for his daughter and girlfriend. Getting restless, Israel began trying to use various ATMs with her debit card to withdraw money to see if the ransom had been paid, but he could only draw $500 out at a time. By early March, there was a hit on her ATM card in Houston, Texas at a bank across from the airport. Before he stopped at the ATM, he rented a white Ford Focus, which was visible on the ATM camera. The FBI contacted Texas law enforcement to watch out for that car. Israel drove to another town in Texas for one of his sister's weddings, causing a scene, exclaiming how he did not believe in God or any organized religion. You see, his family always held out hope that he would, quote, come to his senses and return to the faith. He told his family, quote, you don't know what I've done. I have to drink every day to forget what I've done, end quote. He returned to his hotel room. The next day, he stepped out onto the balcony and saw a local police car driving slowly through the parking lot, but it drove away and Israel didn't dwell on it, but they were watching him. He got in his car and began driving down the road and they pulled him over. The officer asked for his license, which Israel politely handed over. The name in the picture on the license matched that of the suspect in Alaska. The officer started questioning Israel and he became increasingly frustrated. He finally got Israel to get out of the car and put him in handcuffs. Inside the rental car were various tools, transsexual pornography, dye-stained money from a robbed bank, 
masks, and Samantha Koenig's debit card. He was arrested and questioned. They questioned him for some time. He gave the gory details about Samantha's murder along with the couple from Vermont, but he tried everything to control the entire situation. He stated that he would give them more information once they could assure him that his name wouldn't be splashed everywhere and that his daughter would not be greatly affected by his actions. He wanted to go straight to execution. When asked why, he said there was no way he would be able to spend a long period of time behind bars, that he was a wanderer by heart and would not be able to endure it. But he quickly saw that the bureaucracy of law enforcement and attorneys and the whole process was going to take a long time. So sometime overnight, on December 1st, 2012, he took a blade he had taken out of a disposable razor and slit one of his wrists. He then laid face down and tied his bedsheet around his neck, then fastened it around his ankle. And as he began to black out from blood loss, his leg became heavier and heavier, eventually choking him. He had committed suicide before officials could get anything else out of him. He was 34 years old. He left a note, a lengthy note, that said, quote, where will you go, you clever little worm, if you bleed your host dry? Back in your ride, the night is still young. Streetlights push back the black, neat rows. Off to the right, a graveyard appears. Lines of stones, bodies molder below. Turn away quick, bob your head to the seat. As straight through that stop sign, you roll. Loaded truck with lights off slams into you broadside. Your flesh smashed as metal explodes. You may have been free. You loved living your lie. Fate had its own scheme crushed like a bug. You still die. Soon, now, you'll join those ranks of dead or your ashes the wind will soon blow. Family and friends will shed a few tears. Pretend it's off to heaven you go. But the reality is you were just bones and meat and with your brain died also your soul. Send the dying to wait for their death in the comfort of retirement homes. Quietly, quickly say, it's for the best. It's best for you, so their fate you'll not know. Turn a blind eye back to the screen. Soak in your reality shows. Stand in front of your mirror and you preen in a plastic castle you call home. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of scheme Americanize. Consume what you don't need, stars you idolize. Pursue what you admit is a dream, then it's American die. Get in your big car so you can get to work fast on roads made of dinosaur bones. Punch in on the clock and sit on your ass, playing stupid ass games on your phone. Paper on your wall says you got smarts. The test that you took told you so, but you would still crawl like the vermin you are once your precious power grid's blown. Land of the free, land of the lie, land of the scheme, Americanize. Now that I have you held tight, I will tell you a story. Speak soft in your ear so you know that it's true. You are my love at first sight, and though you're scared to be near me, my words penetrate your thoughts now in an intimate prelude. 
I looked in your eyes. They were so dark, warm, and trusting, as though you had not a worry or care. The more guileless the game, the better potential to fill up those pools with your fear. Your face framed in dark curls like a portrait. The sun shone through highlights of red. What color, I wonder? And how straight will it turn plastered back with the sweat of your blood? Your wet lips were a promise of a secret unspoken, nervous laugh as it bursts like a pulse of blood from your throat. There will be no more laughter here. I feel your body tense up, my hand now on your shoulder, your eyes. Forget the lady called Luck. She does not abide near me, for her powers don't extend to those who are dead. There's some stuff they couldn't make out, and he goes on to say, would that I could keep you, let you be the master of your own fate, knowing full well what's at stake? My pretty captive butterfly, colorful wings in my hand smears. I somehow repaint them with punishment and tears. Violent metamorphosis, emerge, my dark moth princess. I would come often and worship on the altar of your flesh. You shudder with revulsion and try to shrink far from me. I'll have you tied down and begging to become my Stockholm sweetie. Okay, talk is over. Words are placid and weak. Back it with action or it all comes off cheap. Watch close while I work now. Feel the electric shock of my touch. Open your trembling flower or your petals I'll crush. End quote. Now, there is tons of footage of his police interviews on the internet that you can go listen to, but it is quite clear that he was glib and unfeeling when it came to his victims. He often chuckled when talking about his actions. <laughs> the things I've done, I don't feel bad about them, he told investigators. He thought that if God allowed all of the pain and suffering in the world, including what he inflicted on innocent people himself, then there must be no God. He said it was not a question of why, but why not? So tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a message on Instagram at serial underscore killing or comment below. And as always, guys, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate that. Thank you so much and have a great day.